I have with me a guest today that you are going to love to meet. He is, uh, he's a veteran. He's a cop. He's an activist. He's an author. And uh, he is, uh, he's everywhere. And he has just some fascinating stories to tell. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Betsy. I appreciate it. Thanks to your organization for all your education of the public. And uh, to you, because I see you all over the place on Fox News, especially. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So so you started before you were a cop. You were in the military, right? Talk about that for a minute. Yes, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, at 17, after the public schools, I, I was fortunate to get into the Air Force Academy. So I headed out to Colorado, graduated, and then I did five years active duty with tours in uh, Italy and Saudi Arabia. And uh, when my active duty was done, I wasn't really happy with my career field. I wanted something a little more active. I uh, got out to come home and uh, get into federal law enforcement. I applied with all the alphabet agencies and uh, switched over to the Army National Guard. And it, it took a couple of years. I went for you know, FBI, Secret Service, DEA. So in that time, it had taken so long, I went to my local NYPD precinct in Brooklyn and uh, took the test. So I ended up getting on first in NYPD, was there for six months, and then Suffolk County PD called six months later. And uh, when Suffolk calls, you answer. So I moved out to Suffolk, and uh, I've been there ever since, 22 years now. And during my 22 years in Suffolk, I then transferred over to the Army Reserves, which pre-9-11 really was not going a lot going on. But as I'm sure you're, you know, post-9-11, we were very busy. Um, I was in for the invasion of Iraq in 2003 with a civil affairs special operations unit. And then in 2010, I went to Afghanistan uh, as part of the provincial reconstruction team. And then after that, I did some missions in NATO as an instructor and uh, finally retired in 2019. And now just strictly doing police and uh, being a PBA board member. So explain to people who may not understand how are you in the military and still a sworn peace officer? And I mean, you know, in the military getting deployed, how, explain to people how that works. Well, it's being a citizen soldier. Your, uh, your profession, your business, it's typically easier if it's with a public municipality government, they have to let you go by law and keep your position for when you come back. And uh, New York was great with it and Suffolk County was, was especially great to all our cops that are serving. They, our positions were held for us. And uh, if some people were going to make less money overseas, they paid them the difference. So top-notch uh, treatment of our military here in Suffolk County. And uh, it, it was the same thing from what I understood in NYPD. They have so many members, so many members in the military. But our reserves, there's a significant portion that are in firefighters, police, uh, medical, um, because those professions are needed in combat zones and when you're doing when you're doing um, standing up countries or trying to rebuild countries or standing up governments trying to rebuild them. And that, that's a substantial part of doing civic uh, military operations like we were doing. So there was uh, actually a lot of us. So how does your military experience translate to street police work and vice versa. Talk about that. I'm going to say, actually, in this case, it was my police experience and training that translated into my military uh, experience. Because when I went to Iraq, 
I was previously Air Force, Air Force Finance. I then switched to Army and I got two whole weeks of training in Fort Bragg. And like, oh, okay, you, you passed all the physicals. You're a special operations CA soldier. Like, oh, great. Thankfully, I had two different police academies and time on the street where, and growing up in Brooklyn, you kind of get street smarts. So all those together with my age being a little older, I think that helped uh, significantly going into Iraq, dealing with local leaders, dealing with people that are um, trying to kill you or those in those villages where they're harboring those people. Uh, you just know how to deal in, in, the, in a second to flip things on and off, you know, when you had to be alert, when you could kind of let your guard down, where just awareness of your environment and, uh, you know, and the people you were encountering. Yeah, a lot of American law enforcement is literally urban warfare sometimes, isn't it? Right, right. And then that's really what Iraq was like, because they really have an infrastructure and a, a government and, and buildings, whereas in Afghanistan, it was definitely more like Middle, medieval times, they literally still have dirt roads with the sewage just going down the middle of the dirt, which is in the center of the village, with wells that they're getting their water from. They didn't have a central government. It was all provincial and tribal. So it was quite different experiences. So what uh, motivated you to write a book, and it's a fantastic book. I mean, the reviews yeah. are off the charts. Thank you, um, thank you very much. What's a, what, talk about the book. What motivated you to write it, and uh, and and how did you come up with the title? Okay, uh, it was 2019. So picture this: this is pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd, November, December. I have to do my final capstone project to write a master's thesis to get my master's degree in national security studies. So I'm thinking with all my military experience, living overseas. I'd really like to write about the resurging Russia or the emerging China, who's our greatest threat, or EMP taking down the grid or bio, biological warfare. But I thought, you know what, having experienced America, you know, post, let's say, Obama, Michael Brown, I thought, you know what, really, the, this, the greatest thing that has a chance of dividing our country and destroying us from within is the issue of racism and using the police as that focal point, that institution, which you're trying to say is systemically and historically racist. It's not that China's gonna come over or run us you know, in the country or the same thing with Russia. It's gonna be from within. That's, that's really our weak, weak point because of our history, which everybody knows and nobody tries to deny uh, as we shouldn't. And we, I thought got past that to the point, especially like they keep on bringing up how the police were slave um, slave catchers. Well, you're talking about today, you have departments that are majority black, like I believe Atlanta PD or majority minority in NYPD. So it's time to move on with the times. And so what I did was I wanted to see, and I was actually curious because you know I know how it is here in Suffolk and growing up in New York, but when all you see on the media is bad stuff about the police interactions, deadly force being with black people. I was wondering how, um, how often does this really happen around the country? You know, what, what are the numbers and the stories? So I did a multifaceted scientific research paper. So it's not my personal feelings. What I started out with, I took USA Today because that had the largest national distribution of any paper in America. 
and I analyzed the front page for four full years. I literally looked at every single front page online and I saw what are the front pages, the stories and the teasers that are then linked in further in the paper, looking at deadly police shootings, uh, any stories on those. And then I also looked at black on black crime because they also say that, oh, the media just tries to make it look like there's more black on black crime than there really is. Not, it's not a big deal. You're just doing it because you're racist. And then I wanted to see, well, comparatively, how many stories are there about police being killed in the line of duty? And just for, for fun, how many uh, positive police stories will there be? So that was just the first part. What I found in those four years, using the Washington Post database, because that's who the left uses to try to attack us, how many deadly police shootings were there in those four years? There is 3,880. And out of that, about 1,886 were of white people, 948 were black. So right there, you can see it's two to one, whites killed versus blacks, and significantly more uh, quantitatively white. So like, how many stories do you think USA Today is gonna have? What I found, they ran 82 different stories mentioning 57 black subjects, a total of 132 times, while mentioning one white subject one time in a story, there was about two black subjects being shot. Now you think of how they call us racist because the disparity is we don't have deadly shootings of blacks in line with their uh, percentage of the population. It's 26% are killed versus 13%. Well, here you have 13% of the population is black, but 100% of the stories are about black people being killed by the police. <laughs> So what, so those numbers are just extraordinary. And, yes. and this is the thing, this is, this is why the National Police Association exists because we saw this war on cops, yes. you know, really starting, in, you know, in 2014 during the Obama administration. Right. And, and, uh, and we said, boy, somebody has got to counter this. And that's one of the things that, that we're trying to do, same thing you're trying to do, is to fight that false narrative that yes. somehow American law enforcement is the problem. Now, here you are, you put all this research in, you gathered all this data, and I'm assuming that all of that scientifically researched data was wildly embraced by the <laughs> academic community, right, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, don't you see me on all the shows? Uh, you know, CNN, CSNBC, MSNBC, whatever. No, no. In fact, it, it's really hard to get the book out there, which is ironic because they're so easy to call us racist. You know, like nothing, no big deal. The cops are racist, systemically racist. But when you actually show them facts, put, put them out there and say, look, no, we're not racist. And by the way, you rioted for a, a whole summer, destroyed, it was like, I don't know, 1,500 businesses, caused 2 billion in damage, 47 people were killed and 2,000 cops were injured on the basis of your angry that the police are systemically racist. And here I'm showing you, we're not. It's a great thing. It's something you should celebrate. Right. But that right. would put some people out of business. Well, and that's the thing. And when you look at, um, you know, so now, you know, we entered this, you know, we entered the George Floyd era, if you will. Right. Right. And, you know, and you, and you look at that and you look at the homicide rate 
in this country. And you look at, just look at the young black men who have been victims of homicide in the last two years since the death of George Floyd. How many thousand young black men have died by homicide yes. because, and, and this is the thing, to avenge George Floyd, right. we have a now a criminal justice system that uh, we have bail reform, we have de-incarceration, we have de-policing, we have defund the police, yeah. all to avenge uh, one guy's death. And every officer involved in that situation is now in prison. And yet you put out the reality of those uh, of, of the, the statistics that show that no, our system isn't systemically racism, racist. No. Law enforcement is not systemically racist. So exactly. you, you get that published and how does this start to affect your work life in a post-George Floyd uh, situation? Well, as I was writing the book, after I wrote my thesis, and then as I'm writing the book, our county had a police reform task force, as every county was mandated to do in New York by then Governor Cuomo, in reaction to the George Floyd incident. So at that, I, I watched the first couple, they did one per precinct, and after watching them just attack the, the cops that I've worked with for years and know have served honorably and professionally and do not discriminate. I had enough. I, and so I started writing speeches because everybody was given three minutes. Now, what I saw was initially a couple of people that were pro-police, they spoke and they, they were destroyed online. They were doxxed, they were attacked. So nobody else wanted to. So that was it. There was no more pro-police people speaking. So I started giving a speech at each one and walking people through all the truth, specific stories, statistics, my own stories. And, uh, well, it's, I got a transfer that fell through because of that. And um, it just comes with the territory. That's how, that's how things work. Well, and it, let me ask you this, because a lot of people, um, in fact, a lot of police leaders, quote unquote leaders, um, they'll step back from speaking out because they want to uh, maintain their jobs. They want to have no issues with being doxxed or their family being harassed or themselves being harassed online. And, right. uh, and you took a completely opposite position on that. Um, talk about that. How did you make that decision? It really wasn't even a decision to make for me. It's just natural. I spent my whole life serving my country, fighting for it overseas for the freedoms that everybody enjoys. Now, I understand when you're in uniform, there's certain things you can and can't say, but when I'm off duty on my own time and I'm not doing anything to dishonor my department, when in fact I'm doing the opposite, I'm trying to do honor my department and my fellow officers and educate the public on the great things that we do and how you're being fed lies, there's no question to me of you know what, what's gonna happen to me. Uh, it's, it's not something that I worry about. I, I do look forward to the day I am retired and I could speak like one of your recent guests, uh, Lieutenant Special Assignment, Eric Dim, him and John, uh, John McCary just had me on their show. Awesome guys. And they are retired and unfiltered because they're retired. God bless them. It's a great so, podcast. Yes, it is. It is. Well, so, you know, we do polling, other organizations do polling, and we find out that most of the American public 
wants their police officers to be well-funded. They um, trust us. We're one of the most trusted professions in this country. Right. Um, they, they worry about us. They're concerned with our safety. Um, they're, they were uh, upset about the, all the violent riots of 2020 and 2021 and wanted them yes. investigated. And yet, you know, what you found out in the media is absolutely just the opposite. Why do you think that the media and a lot of politicians want people to have this hatred for American law enforcement? Well, first you got to think about what kind of people are attracted to politics. And you start to see, like we have George Santos, who recently got elected in New York, habitual liar. He's no different than Joe Biden, who's been lying his entire career, lying his entire career. Nor like the senator in Connecticut who had um, false valor and tried to make believe he was a Vietnam veteran. These are people that are just doing what they need to do to get in power and stay in power, not necessarily out of duty, honor, country. Um, and I think some people do have an agenda that they are not happy with America and they would like to see big changes. As you see, we have elected officials that are socialist, not hiding it. They actually, they brag about it. So if there is an agenda to destroy America the way it is, and it's they're doing it by attacking our culture. Because without a culture, you don't have a country. So they're attacking our police. They're attacking just common sense and words when you see what they're doing with children. Um, even with science, where look, I was one of the biggest vaccine takers ever being in the military. I've got 10 things of anthrax in me. We get the flu shot every day, but after seeing how they politicize COVID, I'm not not so believing in science anymore, or you know, science. So th there's an attack on all fronts within America, and I, as I found in the book, the systemic racism being exhibited was not by the police; it was by the press, the politicians, and the protesters, all in unison. Right. Absolutely. And we, you know, we have now what's been happening uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's starting to spread around the, the country right. is once again, Antifa is getting involved mm -hmm. in the anti-cop movement and, uh, and they're getting violent. Where do you see all that heading? Well, not in good places, because in reaction to the violence, the police are going to have to use more force. And then it becomes like a, a round circle where the more the police act, the more they get reactions from these groups and then sympathetic politicians and media. Because um, I know you had this one guy who was on, I think CNN or MSNBC saying, well, they're calling this violence, but is it really violent because they're just destroying property? Well, first of all, tell that to the people whose property it is. And um, the whole thing, the whole incident was precipitated by violence. They shot a Georgia State trooper as they were clearing out their illegal compound in the forest. So yeah, it, it's violence. And they the way they mince words, they gave him recently, we had two cops stabbed in Suffolk County just this last month. And when Stony Brook, the hospital took phenomenal care of them, they were updating the public on their status. And one of the university professors then writes, oh, but, but what about the person they murdered? And they're like, murdered? They were literally stabbed and almost killed 
because they didn't use deadly force first, they tried to de-escalate, then were almost killed and then used deadly force to you know, save their own lives and not die. So we have about a, a minute and a half left. What do you think it's going to take in a minute to uh, bring young people back to this profession that you and I and 750,000 other people in this country love? It's going to take an all-out effort starting from the, when children are very young, giving them an appreciation and respect for law enforcement, having us shown in a positive light in the schools. It does all start in the schools and how they're being raised by their families and then what they see on TV that it's positive. Um, and they shouldn't be scared of us. You don't want any, any children to be scared of you because then when they grow up, that can lead to a bad encounter because they've been taught to fear, fear you, so they're going to be combative or something. And there has been a lot of bad stuff found in the schools that activist teachers are using to push their agenda, their anti-police agenda. I know there's many teachers that are against it, but you have to get rid of the ones that are doing it. And yeah, once you get right. that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, why is it that activist teacher good, activist cop bad? That doesn't seem to make much sense, does it, Mike? No, it doesn't. There's definitely sets of rules, different sets of rules for different professions and people. Right. Uh, Mike Simonelli, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Um, You are somebody that I think people are really going to want to follow. Thank you very much. Uh, They can find me at Twitter. It's at Justified Force. Uh, I have a website. It's jdfinformation.com, JDF for Justified Deadly Force. And on Truth Social, it's at Justified Deadly Force. I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.